for those of you who don't know Greg or don't know of Greg, he um, has been involved in 65 countries as a missionary. His his boys were born, one in, in India, one in Germany, and one in Lebanon. He was um, involved with Operation Mobilization for 14 years, in fact, was uh, one of the founders of that organization, and he pastored uh, his church in, in Aspen, Colorado, for three years after that, then was the U.S. Director of North Africa Missions uh, for six years following that. Uh, Frontiers, the organization which he now heads, which uh, Dan and Monica are uh, currently involved with and going to Egypt under, is an offshoot of North Africa Missions. Greg's time has been spent focusing on the Muslim world. His his uh, experiences there, his studies are there, his, his uh, uh, insight and knowledge about the Muslim world is extensive. And that's one of the reasons we've got him here, is because we want to learn from him. We want to, to have our eyes open to what God's doing there and what God can be doing there and how God can use us to affect that part of his creation, that part of his world. But there's another reason uh, that we are asking him here, besides just his, his knowledge, as extensive as that is, it's because we are now entering into relationship with him through Dan and Monica, that we, sending them as our, our staff, our field staff, uh, under Frontiers, we are coming into a partnership with Greg and with the Frontiers organization. So we want to get to know him. And we want him to know us. We want this to be a, a friendly partnership, a cooperative partnership, one that God uses to greatly multiply his kingdom. So that is why we have him here this morning, to get to know him, for him to get to know us, and for him to share with us the vision for what God can do through us and through him and through Dan and Monica and, and the rest of the people involved. So, Greg, open your Bibles, if you will, to Luke chapter 16. I hope you heard Dan as he was alluding to the fact that one of these days there's going to be a sister church to Cole Community in Egypt, a congregation of vital, worshiping, witnessing community of transformed Muslims. And uh, we're looking forward to uh, that time when you uh, call some persons up here and have the elders pray for them because you are, uh, you are sending them out to uh, Egypt to go see what God has done uh, through your partnership with us uh, and the Browns, uh, maybe three of them as we've heard, uh, uh, serving out there. It's uh, very much a delight to, to uh, dream those dreams with you. Luke chapter 16. Now, this passage is a very strange passage. And when you come to a passage like this, you should, uh, uh, and you're puzzled, ask the editor why it's there. And what's it got to do with me? And as we read it, might we read it with that stance. Lord, what, what are you trying to say to us? As Jesus was saying to the disciples, there was a certain rich man who had a steward, a manager. And this steward was reported to him as squandering his possessions. 
And he called him and he said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. And the steward said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the stewardship away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. Ah, I know what I'll do, so that when I'm removed from the stewardship, they will receive me into their homes. And he summoned each of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, Hey, how much do you owe my master? And he said, Oh, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Okay, take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. And he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. So he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. And his master praised the unrighteous steward. Because he just lost some more money? No. But because he had acted shrewdly. And then the Lord Jesus says this to us. For the sons of this age, or the children of this gener generation, are more shrewd in relationship to their own kind than the sons of light. Loosely translated, the non-Christians are often more consistent with their presuppositions, with what they say they believe, than are the Christians with what they say they believe. Non-Christian says, hey, you know, there's nothing to it but this world, so you better get it all. And so he starts pushing and shoving and climbing the ladder and to get his boat, to get his camper, to get his cabin, to get this, to get that, the other thing. And because uh, that, that's all there is to life. The Christian says, oh, no. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And so he's climbing the ladder, trying to get his cabin, trying to get his boat, trying to get uh, the same things. And the Lord scratches his head and says, hey, that isn't very smart. And he says, and I say to you, here's the application, verse 9. Here's what I want you to get yourself into. Making friends. Making friends for yourselves by means of the mammon of unrighteousness, using all your resources. What is money? Money is your time, your energy, your education, uh, squeezed into a transferable form. Using this to make friends that when it fails, and it will fail, they, these friends, will welcome you into eternal dwellings. So our theme this week is making friends for eternity. And I want us to think about two events that are yet to occur for those of us who know the Lord. If you're not a Christian yet, you've just been stalling on this thing, uh, you just really are afraid to turn your life over to Christ, and you're still outside the family, uh, this message really isn't for you. You know what you have to do. You need to get right with the Lord and get going uh, with him. But this is for the people who, who do know him, who, who are saying, Lord. There's two exciting events yet to occur. The first one, of course, is that day when we're going to meet the Lord Jesus Christ face to face. Do you think much about that? I think about that all the time. What's the Lord going to say to me when I meet him face to face? I know what I want him to say. I want him to say, Greg, all right, well done. Well done. I was able to accomplish 
everything I wanted to accomplish through your life. You didn't limit me by getting all your plans in front of my plans. You didn't slow me down by your unbelief, by your refusing to take the promises seriously. Do you know what the worst missionary disease is? It's not uh, malaria, that's what you get down in black Africa. It's not filaria, that's worms in the blood, which I've got. Uh, so if you wonder why I jiggle around a little bit, you'll understand. Uh, but that's not the worst disease a missionary can get. The worst disease a missionary can get is dullaria. Now, dullaria is something you know you've got when, as you read the Bible, it no longer gets you excited and the promises of God have become devotionals. Well, yeah, I know the Bible says you say into this mountain, jump up and get into the sea and, and it'll do it. And yes, well, now let's be practical. You've got dullaria when you get to that place. And the problem is, whether you're a missionary overseas or whether you're here at home, the tendency is that the longer you walk with the Lord, the more we tend to live by our experiences. Well, you know, unless you bring pies, they'll never come out on Sunday evening and, and we figure out all the ways, you know, that we're, that we're going to do it. Uh, we tend to live by our experiences instead of by the promises of the Word of God. What's Jesus going to say when you meet him? I've got a friend in Aspen. He's one of the elders of our church, and he's the neatest guy. He loves the Lord. He's about 68, and uh, he's got one thing that bothers me. In his backyard, he's got a train. Not a toy train, a real train. Not actually the whole train, but one of these cars from yesteryear. And, and, and I say, Dell, what are you going to do with this thing? He says, well, you know, one of these days I'm going to fix it up. And I'm thinking, good grief, Dell, what do you mean fix it up, you know? What are you going to say to the Lord? One of these days you're going to meet the Lord, you know? What are you going to say to him? Hey, Lord, you want to see my train? <laughs> you know? And we laugh, but I'll bet you there's a lot of trains, quote unquote, out there. Stuff that's sitting up in your attics or your backyard or stuff that was, you got real excited about that ought to be just uh, liquidated and turned into meeting needs of people out there. Because you know what? The will of God for our lives is people. Aren't you glad somebody finally came around to tell you the will of God of your life? For your life, I'm going to tell you. The will of God for your life and mind is people because Jesus died for people. He didn't die for trains. He didn't die for furniture. He didn't die for houses. He didn't die for businesses. He died for people because only people are going to live forever, either in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ or separated from him forever. That's what Christ taught. And we have to ask ourselves, do I really, really believe that? What's the Lord going to say to you when you meet him? Uh, well, we can't uh, just uh, focus on that. There's, maybe there's going to be other people who, who uh, are going to have to have some time with him when we meet him. And so I'd like us to focus on the second most exciting event, which is yet to occur for us who love the Lord. And that is what's alluded to here in verse 9. Friends who are going to welcome you into heaven. Now, we've all had the experience that it's not so much fun of going to a conference or to a room somewhere. We had to go to something and, and nobody knew us. Nobody welcomed us. I don't know what women do, but men kind of stuff their uh, hands in their pockets, check out their shoe shine, check the lights out, <laughs> uh, you know, until somebody kind of uh, welcomes them and introduces themselves. 
It's not so much fun. What's it going to be like when you're in heaven? How many people are going to be there who are going to welcome you there because you got involved in some way in their lives? You know, I mean, think of the possibilities. Think of the possibilities. Of, you know, you're up there in the presence of the Lord and this big old German uh, comes up to you and, you know, Germans aren't really huggers now, but they'll be then, and throws his arm around you and says, Feeling dunk! I'm here in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ because as you got linked with the pedicords and you helped them get that ministry set up, they trained so-and-so, Fritz, and Fritz talked to uh, Helmut, and Helmut talked to me on the college campus, and I am here in the presence of the Lord because you did what the Lord said, you lifted up your eyes. You remember the Lord said, lift up your eyes? Did you ever ask yourself why the Lord said lift up your eyes? Because he knows that by nature, we have our eyes where our feet are. You see? I mean, that's natural. We've got the mortgages to pay for. We've got the job to get through with all its complications. We've got that motorcycle we're rebuilding. We've got uh, uh, the kids to get through school. Uh, it's very easy. It's very natural to be totally immersed in where your feet are. But the Lord loves you so much. He wants you to have so much more that he says, hey, lift up your eyes and look at the multitudes. There's a lot of people out there and I'm so big that I want to use you to get involved with them. And so you're going to have some people as you've linked with the, uh, the Levitts in Suriname. You're going to have some of these tribal people of Suriname coming up to you and giving you a hug and saying thank you for staying involved with the Levitts so that we could know that God had visited the earth. And some Dominicans and some Mexicans and some of these Canadian Indians and people from Irian Jaya and some of these Arabs from Egypt welcoming you into eternal habitations. Now, if you can think of something more exciting than that, you come and tell me uh, after the service. Now, uh, I know that uh, there are some people here who are already... Uh, uh, going through the motions as it happens everywhere I go, saying, oh, well, here it is, Hazel, you know, the missions conference. We've got to listen to one of these missionaries rant and rave, you know, glad it's only once a year or, or whatever it is, because, you know, despite what Dan Brown said and Scott saying, you know, this country's going to pot and we really need a lot more work here and uh, those Arabs can get on uh, without us. And missions, you're just thinking, is not your thing. Hey, I want to tell you, if that's where you're at, I really can identify with you. When I became a Christian in Aspen, Colorado, I didn't know what a missionary was, but I was sure I didn't want to be one. I mean, I didn't want to marry a girl that had her hair up in a bun with a doily on the top. I had no desire to go overseas. I uh, didn't like snakes and spiders. I had that stereotype that most of you have, that missions work is all in little grass huts and, and facing people like Jim Alka did. Uh, Jim Elliott faced the Alkas with uh, spears. Uh, by the way, of all these teams that you're going to be hearing about going through frontiers like Dan Monica Brown, now one of them is going to a place that's got a smaller population than 100,000. All cities, all urban... Uh, the vast majority of the peoples of the earth who don't have a church among them live in cities, not uh, in faraway uh, tribal 
areas, although there still, of course, are tribes who still need the gospel, still need the Bible uh, in their language. But I, I had no desire to be a missionary. I was sure I wasn't the missionary type, uh, whatever that was. And uh, so I was planning to go to Princeton. I was planning to study law uh, like a good, normal, red-blooded American uh, until I found out that there was this Christian school called Wheaton that had a thousand Christian girls. <laughs> and Princeton didn't have any at that time, Christian or otherwise. Uh, and I felt strangely led to go to Wheaton. Uh, however, I was still going to be a lawyer. I figured God needed a few good lawyers. And uh, I was walking across the campus of Wheaton, and this guy came up to me and said, Hey, Greg, how would you like to go to an all-night prayer meeting? I said, What? What have you got to pray about that takes all night? <laughs> now, in my little church, we had prayer meetings, which were really Bible studies with ten minutes of prayer tacked on the end. Usually the week's medical bulletin, you know? <laughs> Whose kidney was out that week and who uh, had a cough and, and so forth. And so we sort of gathered those, uh, those things and put them, you know, prayer requests, sort of like Buddhists put little prayer requests in these wheels and wing them around. And I mean, we didn't really expect anything to happen. If somebody jumped up that we'd prayed for and said, I'm healed, we'd have kicked him out of the church, you know. We, we didn't expect that kind of thing to happen. So that was my concept of prayer. And uh, I said, what have you got to pray about that takes all night? And he said, the Muslim world. And you know how you're trying to compute Muslim. Let's see, that's a white cheesecloth Muslim. Uh, Muslim, what's a Muslim? And I, I couldn't compute anything. But more out of pride than anything else, thinking, well, I can pray as long as he can, uh, I went off to this prayer meeting. After all, everything's got to be tried once, right? And uh, I walked in there, and this guy named George Brewer came, put his skinny finger in my face, and he says, What country are you claiming, brother? Well, I wasn't claiming anything, much less a country. And uh, again, I didn't want him to know that, so I said, Well, what's left? And he said, Libya, you've got Libya. And I'm thinking, let's see, Arizona, I know it's out there somewhere, Libya. I had no idea that there were countries in the world still today that didn't have one known baptized believer in the entire country, like Libya. I had no idea that 90% of Egypt was Muslim, where people go to bed every night, get up every morning without anything to remind them that God has visited the earth. People called Muslims who are told that wicked Jews changed the Old Testament, wicked Christians changed the New Testament, so the Bible is rubbish now, so God had to send the Quran to Muhammad that this is the way, the truth, and the life, although the Quran gives you nothing. No Savior. No way to come to God. I had no idea of countries like Turkey that had 10, 11, 12 believers in the entire country. Or uh, Afghanistan with a handful of believers. I didn't realize that there were 800 million of these Muslims who have resisted Christianity, who have been bluffed into thinking that Hollywood was Christianity and therefore they wanted nothing to do with it. Some of you got very huffy when Khomeini in Iran called America the great Satan. 
Well, as far as he understands, we are. We're the people who are exporting the pornography, exporting the booze, exporting the Hollywood movies that tell you don't be faithful to your wife. No wonder he calls America and Christianity the great Satan. Look at it from his perspective. When I was down at Liberty Baptist College, I said, actually, I don't know what you're getting so excited about Khomeini about. He and Dr. Falwell complaining about the same things. <laughs> they had a little trouble with that one. But... Uh, <laughs> I did something else there. I said, uh, they, they gave me two whole minutes in the church. I said, well, Lord, what do I do in two minutes? So I said, okay. How many people here, this was during the Iranian crisis, you know, where they had the 52 American hostages. I said, how many people here have been praying for the 52 American hostages? Whoom! Every hand in the place went up. I could almost see an American flag in the other hand. I said, okay, put your hands down. Now, God is watching. And you can consider this for yourself. How many people here have been praying for the 30 million Iranian hostages? Isn't that what we believe? That these people are hostage to Satan, that they're in the kingdom of darkness, that they're outside of, of God's provision in Christ, and that they're hostage, they're in a snare? How many people have been praying for the Iranians? You know, in a congregation of 4,600 Four people raised their hands. How many of you prayed for the Iranians at that time? Are we Americans first? Christians second? Are we majoring in the things that are on God's heart? Well, I began to realize that the greatest thing I could throw my life into was teaming up with God to see vital congregations sprouting up, coming into existence, People worshiping and loving God like right here in major cities of the world, Muslim cities that still didn't have a church. That's what Frontiers is all about. That's what the Browns ministry is all about. And we are praying that God might begin to bother you, that God might begin to just get under your skin and you might say like we have, that's not right. And before the Lord Jesus Christ comes, we're going to believe Him for a breakthrough in the Muslim world like we've never seen yet. Turn to Philippians chapter 4 as I close, reminding you that the book of Philippians is a missionary's prayer letter. Did you know that? It's a missionary's prayer letter sent back to a supporting church. We wouldn't let our missionaries write them this long because uh, you wouldn't read them. Uh, but uh, that's what it is. And in chapter 4, you can see uh, the relationship between this foreign missionary and his home church. And ask yourself, is this the kind of relationship we have, I have, with our missionaries? You know, I go to a lot of churches, and I speak to, and most of them are very missions-minded, or they wouldn't even invite me, right? And uh, I say to one of the elders, I say, well, look, how's your missions program? Oh, he says, oh, boy, we've got a tremendous missions program. In fact, I sometimes think we're overdoing it, you know. Uh, getting, you know, and, uh, well, I, well, that's interesting. Tell me about some of your missionaries. Oh, well, we've got uh, so many missionaries, it's hard to remember all their names, 
Uh, and, uh, well, just tell me about one of them. Oh, well, I mean, you know, there's... Uh, uh, dear, what's the name of that couple in, uh, in Argentina? Uh, the Joneses, right? Oh, the Smiths. Oh, it's Peru. They've been home seven years. Yeah. Well, we've got a tremendous missions program. And for a lot of the people here, a missions program is somebody else's business in this church. And you've come to misunderstand the Great Commission. You've come to reread Acts 1-8 incorrectly. You think Acts 1-8 says something like this. You shall be my witnesses, first in Jerusalem, that's Boise, and then in Judea, that might be uh, over at uh, uh, BSU, a little work forum, that's kind of our Judea. And then maybe we'll send uh, a, a little team during the summer of kids to uh, Mexico, work with the Brown Beelers or something, that's sort of our Samaria. And then, of course, there'll always be those people, uh, who knows how it happens to them, like the Browns who are walking along somewhere, and God says, go to the uttermost part. And, and, you know, and so they come, and, and they ask for our bucks, and we we got we to gotta fork out, and, and that's the uttermost parts of the earth for us. That's how most of us interpret Acts 1.8. That's not what it says, beloved. Look at it. It says, you who claim to be my followers, who want to be in on my program, who want to be uh, serious about making me Lord, you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost parts. That God is calling us not to be an either-or Christian. Well, my ministry is here in Boise, Jerusalem. Let me establish something that may shock you right away. Boise ain't Jerusalem. When he sent them to Jerusalem, he wasn't sending them to their hometown. Do you remember when the Spirit of God came upon them and they began to witness out there in Jerusalem, the place they were scared to death to minister into, the place they hated, they didn't like Jerusalem. They weren't any more at home in Jerusalem than you are in Manhattan, New York. And the people said, what is this? Behold, are not these men Galileans? They didn't go to their hometown. They went to the place where God had gathered at that moment 200,000 Jews who were hungry enough for reality with God that they spent a lot of shekels coming from all over the then known world to Jerusalem for the Pentecost feast because they were hungry for God, they wanted reality, and no wonder when Peter preached they saw 5,000 converted. And where did the 5,000 go? They scattered out to all these outposts of the then known world so that those were missionary outposts. Why? Because Jesus wanted these disciples to have a world ministry not to be either or Christians, but to be both and Christians, wanted them to touch lives from all over the world, and so he sent them to Jerusalem. Now, if you insist on going first to Jerusalem, okay, we'll get you on a plane to Kennedy, then over to Israel, because Jerusalem is in Jerusalem, and you can start there if you want. But the point is that God loves you so much. He wants to give you, even you, with all your complicated life, with your complexes on your complexes and, and uh, people sick in your family and so forth, He wants to give you a world ministry. He wants to make you a both-and Christian. He wants to give you friends who are going to welcome you from all over the world. 
into eternal habitations. And Paul had the same idea, and that's why he says here in Philippians 4, starting with verse 15, that you Philippians know that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me, communicated with me, was in partnership with me. This word here, shared, is the same word we use for communion. So that's talking about intimate relationship with your missionary. No church was in intimate partnership with me. Except you only, for even in Thessalonica, you gave more than once. You were alert to what was happening. You knew where I was. You knew what needed to be happened. You sent people. They sent Epaphroditus. That's what you just did when you sent off these carpenters and Chris. You're sending Epaphroditus from the home church to work out with the field man. Encourage him. It's beautiful. Read it in Philippians 2. That's what you're doing, and I commend you for it. It's absolutely right on. Uh, but you were in partnership with me. Now, here's the point. Verse 17. Not that I seek the gift itself. The missionaries aren't out to live easy on your hard-earned cash. Not that I seek the gift itself, Paul says. I want you to be involved with me. I want you to be going beyond where you've ever gone because I seek for the profit which increases to your account. There it is. The same idea as Jesus is talking about, treasures in heaven and accounts. You may not have very much in your account, but you all know what accounts are. And here's an illusion that we're going to have accounts in eternity. And he says, I want you to get involved with me. I want you in the missions program. I want you to be a both-and Christian so that there might be eternal joy, crowns. Do you ever think about the crown you've heard about when we meet Jesus, we're going to get a crown? Did you ever think about the crown? What kind of a crown do you want? You want gold, silver, pearls, rubies? You know, just kind of give you a headache? Ooh, you know. Throw it at Jesus' feet, the hymn says, clank. What would be the point of that? No, that's not what the Bible's talking about when it's talking about crowns. We're told in 1 Thessalonians 2.19 what the crowns are. As Paul writes to Thessalonians, he says, not what, but who is our joy and our glory and our crown in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? Is it not even you, you Thessalonians? You are our glory and joy. You are our crown. The crowns are going to be these friends who welcome you into eternal habitations. That's what... That's what the crowns are that we're to go after. So don't say, oh, I'm not after crowns. I'm not after reward. You're disobeying the Lord. He says, go for it. Be after it. Not for your, you know, paneled mansion, but for people who are going to be there for eternity because of your life. I believe when we get up to heaven, we're going to get a printout. That's right. You know, God's always ahead of, of man. And we're going to get a printout, and on my printout is going to be the names of all the persons who were instrumental in my coming to Christ. Hostile street kid with a Jewish father and a nightclub singing mother who thought Jesus was a guy that wore a white robe and carried a lamb under his arm. That's all I knew. And this girl who lured me into the Baptist church, she'll be on my computer, and her parents who won me to Christ through chicken dinners. They'll be on my uh, printout. And uh, 
the cowboy preacher who thunked away uh, about God visiting the earth and dying for me, he'll be in my printout. And the other preacher uh, who uh, nurtured me along in the Lord, he'll be there. Why? So that I know who to run up to and throw my arms around and thank and say, Thank you. I'm here forever because of your life. All the people who are part of that chain reaction. And just think now for a minute, visualize the multitudes of people who are going to be there. The Bible says from every tribe, every nation, every group are going to be there. You know, in case you think we're going to lose, you can turn to the back of the book and see how it comes out. And it says here in chapter 7 of Revelation, a great multitude from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every people. So we know we win. And they're all going to have their printout. And I don't know about you, but I want to get my name on as many of those printouts as possible to have friends who are going to welcome me into eternal habitations. I want to close with a story about a Romanian couple because everywhere I go, people say, well, you don't know my town. My town is really hard and you don't know my situation. It's really hard. Uh, and so I picked this true story from Romania because it's not so easy to live for Christ in Romania as you can imagine. And this couple were claiming the promises of God. They didn't have dolaria. And they said, Lord, they were in their 70s. They said, before we come home to meet you, we want you to do one thing. We want to claim that you're going to bring one Jew to Christ through our lives before we die. And they kept praying it and they kept claiming it. And unbeknown to them, in the city, in the capital, a young Jew got tuberculosis, went to the doctor. The doctor said, you need to go out to the country and guess whose farm they ended up on. Right. And when they realized they had a Jew on their farm, they really began to pray and they began to love him uh, into the Lord through chicken dinners. And he came to Christ. His name was Richard Vermbrandt. Richard Vermbrandt went on to become a pastor. He went on to win hundreds of Romanians to Christ. He spent, I think, 14 years in a communist prison. He now has a ministry in the States called uh, Jesus in the Communist Lands. And you may know about him. You may think he's quite eccentric. Listen, if you were 14 years in a communist prison, you'd be eccentric too. In fact, some of you are eccentric even without that. But uh, uh, picture, if you will, this Romanian couple who are in heaven now and with their printout, you know, as they touched Vermbrandt and he touched other lives who've gone on to touch other lives who've gone on to touch other lives in other communist countries behind the uh, Soviet Union and so forth. This thing is just going... There's a printout still coming, see? Of names that they have touched, of lives that are partially in heaven for eternity because of their lives. My God, give us the grace to go for it. Shall we pray together? Let's take one full minute just to be quiet before the Lord and respond to Him. I believe that it's appropriate to be quiet before him and say, Lord, what are you saying to me? There's some of us here who need to say, Lord, I'm sorry. I really had said that missions were somebody else's thing. Forgive me. I want to be a world Christian. I want to be a both-and Christian, Lord. 
get me involved. Some of us need to repent. That we've turned our back on something that's priority to our Lord Jesus. And there's others who you've got that desire and you need to ask him to show you the steps. Lord, what do you want me to do? How can I be a real partner in making it happen? Ask him, he'll show you. If you want it badly enough. And then there are some here who have already been involved and and you were enthusiastic at some point and you have grown kind of cold. You've got entangled in the affairs of this world. You've gone flat and God's telling you to get back into the saddle and measure on world evangelization. And you need to say, yes, Lord, to him. Whatever you need to say to him, you, you talk to him. Father, you know our hearts. You know that we love you. You know that we don't want to stop short of what you want to do with our lives. Cause us to hunger and to thirst after being men and women through whom you can accomplish everything that you want to do. And lead us on into great triumphs in Egypt, in Germany, and still in places where we haven't sent any laborers. Call them out from this body. Do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we could ask or even think, because that's what kind of God you are. In Jesus' name, amen.